When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Christian Entrepreneurs Podcast. Conversations with Christian entrepreneurs to inspire and empower Christian business owners to walk strongly in their faith. Well, build a thriving business that honors Him in every way. Now, over to your host, Anne Marie Cross. And welcome to another episode of the Christian Entrepreneurs Podcast, brought to you by Podcasting with Purpose, helping you to stand out, be heard, and become an influential voice in your industry with a podcast. And yes, I'm, I'm your host, Anne Marie, also known as the Podcasting Queen. Now, my guest today says the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And joining me on today's show is Rabbi Daniel Lapin. Now, Rabbi Lapin is making ancient Jewish wisdom in the areas of finance, family, faith, friendship, and fitness accessible to people of every background. Now, on today's show, he's going to share how Bible-based wisdom has benefited Israel and how it can help you, God's view of human economic interaction and your wealth-building efforts, as well as why scientific and medical discoveries occurred mostly in Christendom. Welcome to the show, Rabbi. Well, thank you, Anne-Marie. I've been looking forward. Yes, so have I. As uh, for those of you who may only just uh, be hearing and learning about you, uh, one of our former guests, and of course he was a couple of shows ago, Jeff Letts, after the show said, you must get the rabbi on. Uh, He's got so much wisdom and knowledge to share. Oh, I, I pay him to do that. Oh, do you? He's on the payroll. I love that. I love that. Well, let's dive in. I've I've, uh, just so wanted to hear your words, how Bible-based wisdom has benefited Israel and how it can help us today. Well, uh, first of all, um, I think it uh, we have to all acknowledge something that is going to make any Jewish listeners we might have extremely uncomfortable. And that is that you would have to be a blind immigrant from outer Mongolia not to know that Jews are disproportionately successful with money. That is true in Australia. It's true in the United States. In the United States, for instance, Forbes magazine publishes an annual list of the 400 richest Americans. Now, because Jews are a little less than 2% of the population, out of 400 richest Americans, you might expect to see typically seven, eight, nine Jewish multimillionaires. But uh, in every single year, and as far back as one wants to check, the lowest number has been 60. It's usually closer to 100. So it's huge overrepresentation. Instead of 2% of the Forbes 400 uh, being Jewish, about 25% of them um, are actually Jewish. So uh, that's just one instance. It's true in Europe. It's true. It's also been true in other times. It's not only true in good times and in uh, hospitable 
countries, but also in tyrannical regimes, whether it was Soviet Russia or whether it was uh, uh, Germany in the, the 20th century. By and large, uh, the, 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 the Hebrew people have been disproportionately good with money. Now, uh, you've got to decide what is responsible for that. Is it something that is transferable to people of every background? So, for instance, if it turns out that circumcision is the key to Jewish wealth, I think many men might prefer poverty. So, um, but it, the good news is that it isn't. You know, is it is a diet? Is it eating Jewish soul food? You know, and again, that's obviously nonsensical. Uh, moving into the more seriously treated theories, um, one of the dumbest is that um, the uh, evil Cossacks killed the poor Jews. The rich Jews bought their way to freedom, allowing them to reproduce. But for that racist explanation to be true, there would have to be a money gene in Jewish sperm you know, which is, again, completely nonsensical. And so when you get right down to it, you know, after all these possibilities, including maybe Jews just cheat and steal, maybe that's why we're rich. You know, could that be? Well, we certainly have to consider it. And uh, especially since the Oxford English Dictionary uh, used to list under the word Jew, they listed as a verb, as in to Jew somebody, meaning to cheat them. So uh, could it be then that Jewish financial success is due to an extremely flexible morality? And uh, again, it's not that hard. I won't, I won't take the time to walk you through my uh, years of research on all of this, but it's not hard to prove that that's not the explanation. And so when we get right down to it, uh, could it be that Jews are just intelligent? Now, it's true that Jews in the United States of America do score high on standardized intelligence tests, but they don't score nearly as high as uh, Asians do. And so that still doesn't explain it. And what is more, uh, the most intelligent, the most high IQ people end up invariably on the faculties of universities. And anybody in the financial services business knows that nobody is as illiterate financially as academics. Almost nobody is as bad with money as academics. And so once again, it's not hard to disprove and debunk the notion that intelligence is tied to money. Now, uh, you can't be an utter moron and make money. Uh, you know, let's not forget that the movie Forrest Gump was actually a movie. It was not a documentary. And so the, the, the truth about intelligence is that like anything else, it's distributed uh, throughout the population on a standard normal curve. Obviously, at the very low end of the curve, nobody is making a lot of money. But here's the interesting thing. At the very high end of the curve, nobody is either. In other words, your grandmother and my grandmother sometimes use the expression, he's too smart for his own good. And this was absolutely the case. And and the truth is that uh, most of us are not that comfortable doing business for, with people who are super intelligent and show it because we feel that there's a hidden agenda. There's something we're not getting. And so the overwhelming majority of truly successful people, the people who have become financially affluent, uh, they're not super intelligent. They're right there in the middle. They are right there in terms of average intelligence. And, uh, and so the secret is, interestingly enough, biblical. 
The secret for disconspicuous and disproportionate Jewish financial success is because we are known as, and, and again, you know, just so people should know, uh, I'm actually Jewish. I'm a Jewish rabbi, and, uh, and I'm very, very happy to be on a show of Christian entrepreneurs because when I listened to the opening words on the intro, uh, it said, uh, didn't it say something like Bible-based? A Bible-based financial knowledge. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, Jews, as the people of the book, have specialized in studying and absorbing and teaching to their children the entire body of ancient Jewish wisdom, particularly as it pertains to finance, although to other things as well. And uh, and what it boils down to is an understanding. First of all, what is God's essential plan? for human economic interaction, because I think we'd all agree that if you try and swim against the stream of God's wishes, that's not going to work really well. So, uh, you know, it's it's like going to uh, Bondi Beach, isn't it? Ideally, you want to swim with the waves. Are you in Sydney or Melbourne or whereabouts are you? Melbourne. You're in Melbourne. Okay, I don't know the name of the beach in Melbourne. Say St Kilda Beach, but there's not that many waves. But anyway, we'll go for that. St Kilda Beach. Current, yeah, we all know that uh, you'll make most progress if you swim with the current, not against the current. And the good Lord has set in place uh, what you might call a current of uh, economic tendency. And if you know what it is and you go with it, you're going to do a whole lot uh, better than if you buck it and try and go against it. And so we really do need to know what God's plan is or was and is for human economic interaction. Uh, It also allows us to ask and answer questions such as, does God want you to be rich? And so we need to answer that question before uh, we're done today, Anne-Marie, before we, we're through. You mustn't let me say goodbye till we have answered that question. Okay. And obviously, the only place to go for this information is Scripture. Uh, there isn't anywhere else that we can find the uh, reliable and um, unimpeachable information on what God really does. I mean, for instance, is it possible that God's attention was distracted by some political hotspot in the Balkans, and when he next looked down, he saw, oh, my goodness, look at these terrible people. They've invented money. How awful. I was hoping they wouldn't do that while I wasn't paying attention. No, I think we can safely assume that money was part of God's plan for for no other reason than um, at the very beginning of Genesis, God seems to be incredibly cheerful. Uh, he, for everything he makes, he, he says is good. And the very first time that we see God saying something isn't good is where he says, not good for man to be alone. And we'll come back to that. But uh, the last thing that is good turns out to be gold. Now, that's that's really interesting. So the gold, the metal of monetization, the metal that has always represents money. And to this very day, when when people feel in any way uncertain about security, they invest in gold. They buy gold because they know it's always going to be there. So uh, gold, apparently, according to scripture, is good. And then uh, pretty soon, Abraham wants to buy a piece of real estate. He wants to acquire a piece of real estate in order to have a, a cemetery, a family cemetery, He wants to bury his late wife. And uh, here we find a very interesting thing, which is that primitive people do not understand about land ownership. 
Uh, so, for instance, um, the Australian Aborigines did not own land. Mm. They they were they were they used the land. They lived wherever they liked, but they didn't have a system of owning land. Mm. And I don't blame them. The American uh, Indians did not have any buying of land because there was nothing in their world that could possibly have taught them this idea that humans own land. If anything, they would say, you know, people don't own land, land owns people. And particularly when you die and you get buried, well, I guess, yeah, the land owned you there, that's for sure. So um, uh, animals don't own land, animals roam around, and, and that's exactly what primitive people have always done. Uh, and it comes to the Bible to show us the very first instance of this idea of Abraham wanting to buy some land. And, of course, the uh, Ephron and the people of Het say to him, what are you talking about? Just, you know, whatever you want, just bury her anywhere. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, I actually want to purchase this land. And they sort of shrug their shoulders, and he says, uh, um, yeah. And they say, well, they toss a number in there because they've never sold land before. They say 400 pieces of silver. Abraham says, deal. And he hands over the money, and now he's bought the land. And then uh, a few weeks later, this isn't in the Bible, but I'm just speculating. A few weeks later, some of them came to put up a little shack there because a hunting season, they like putting up a hunting shack right there. They always have. And Abraham goes over and says to them, sorry, pal, you need to take this down right away and move it off my land. They were baffled. They were utterly perplexed because they've never had this experience of owning land before. And so Abraham introduces this concept that human beings do own real estate. Uh, it's a very, very different thing. And so there we begin to get a little bit of a sense that uh, having money is not a, a sign of evil, it's a sign of good. Now, one of the big dangers, and I, I speak at probably, well, during COVID time, not so much, but uh, I've been doing a few um, video speeches, but ordinarily I speak for about 30 churches a year, Anne-Marie. Uh, I speak for churches in uh, in Great Britain, in uh, in Europe, I, most recently in Switzerland. I've spoken in Africa. Uh, so I speak for a lot of churches all the time. One of the things that I find to be most disturbing is when I arrive at a church for a Sunday morning uh, service, or sometimes two or even three services, and I sometimes notice that the paint is peeling on the building, light bulbs haven't been replaced, roof not looking in such good shape, pastor's wife is looking stressed, and I know that look means how do I pay all the bills this month, and it breaks my heart because it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, somehow or another, uh, they have acquired a, um, a an idea of, of an equation that reads uh, piety equals poverty, mm. and poverty equals piety. That somehow, if you're poor, this is a sign of what a saintly person you are. Yes. And there is absolutely... Now, again, when I say Bible, you'll forgive me. I, I don't know the New Testament. I'm only very knowledgeable in the Old Testament. So that's that's all I can speak of. But but the Old Testament is important to you too, right? Yes, so, absolutely. So, so we're good. We're good. We're good. By the way, we've got some fans of yours here, Rabbi. Uh, no kidding. Love your book, Thou, Thou Shalt Prosper. Francisco. 
Yes. Oh, hi, brother. That's very good to hear you. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, the, uh, the book is called Thou Shall Prosper. I have another one called uh, uh, Business Secrets from the Bible. And I have a video program called uh, Financial Prosperity Collection uh, because I really do believe that as many people that can acquire the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom in finance, the better off it is for absolutely everybody. So I love teaching that material. And it's important to, I mean, this podcast is called the Christian Entrepreneurs Podcast. So I'm assuming that everyone who's listening and watching and even catching the recording is in business. So if you're not generating a profit, generating income, we're not in business. And so, you know, if there is this somehow scarcity and this fear of, of money, then uh, it's going to be very difficult. And, and, you know, the things that are possible that you can sow into and support when you've got, you know, income. Into, and I know that that's such a very important uh, aspect of wealth building as well is, is that. So speak a little bit. What, is, what are some of the insights that you can share today? Well, what's really, really important, Anne-Marie, is something you just touched on. In, uh, in 1954, uh, a medical student by the name of Roger Bannister ran a mile in just under four minutes. It had never happened before. In the next year, a couple of dozen athletes did it. And in every year since then, athletes run a, a, a four-minute mile or less all the time. Why didn't anybody do it before Roger Bannister? And the answer everybody knows is nobody believed that it was possible. So much so that doctors had said, uh, it would kill a human being. So if you look at some of the old newsreel footage, you'll see Roger Bannister breaks through the tape at 3.59, and it's, a, it's an amazing moment. And then he drops to the grass and rests for a few moments, and one of the newsreel uh, commentators says, well, as the doctors predicted, he died in the attempt, but at least he died doing what he loved doing. And just as he, you know, the last word had left his mouth, Roger Bannister jumped up and ran a victory lap. So, um, so why were people able to do it afterwards? Because he showed that it could be done. And uh, if you see, the truth is that decent people cannot excel at any activity they consider to be morally reprehensible. And so since we have been conditioned into believing that we don't make money, we take money. Therefore, being rich is a de facto indicator of moral turpitude. You must have trod on all the widows and orphans on your way up the ladder. It's tragic, it's false, but a lot of people believe it. And a lot of people take comfort in their poverty by saying, well, this just goes to show what a good person I am, because I never showed any greed, because obviously we make money from greed and avarice and trying to take things away from people. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. And um, this is one of the great uh, lies of socialism. And it's so much of a tragedy that Jews and Christians, not, I mean, not everybody, small numbers, but Many Jews and many Christians have bought into this idea that if you have money, it is evidence of you not being such a good person. 
Yeah, which is found yeah. from truth because one of the things I know that you say too and, and many and I know to, to be true is when you provide high quality excellence and service delivered with integrity and you are offering a solution or selling a product which is going to save time, money, heartache, whatever it is for the person to whom is purchasing that, I mean, there's an exchange of value there, isn't there? There's no uh, stealing or, or, or trotting over people. Yeah, it's, and it's it's really, it's even more than that because uh, what I sometimes say to people um, in this situation who, who are, are certain that uh, there's something not good, I say to them, please take a dollar out of your pocket. You got a dollar, show to me. And I say, now look at that dollar and I'm going to tell you how you got it. Provided you answer the next two questions with a no, I know where you got that dollar. Mm. And the person says, what are the next two questions? I said, my first question is, did you hold up a convenience store and steal that from their till, from their cash register? And he laughs. He says, no, I never did that. And then I say, okay, did you mug a little old lady and steal her purse and take the money out of there? He said, no, I didn't do that either. Um, well, then the only way you got that is by pleasing another one of God's children. Because whoever gave you that money gave it to you voluntarily. Whoever gave you that money gave it to you because they valued that money less than what they valued you gave them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. So it's not only that it was an exchange, but it was a valuable exchange. And we can prove this, actually, Anne-Marie. Let's do a thought experiment, shall we? Yeah, let's. What's a nice shopping mall in Melbourne? Um, well, let's just take our local one. It's Westfield at Fountain Gate. By the way, the man who built up the Westfield is a Jewish man, Lowy. Yeah. Oh, Frank of course. Lowy. Yeah, just talking about Jewish business success. Uh, yeah, the man who, who built the Westfield Empire, uh, as Frank Lowy was a Jewish guy, uh, escaped uh, you know Europe burning in the middle of the 20th century and came to Australia where he was blessed and uh, and blessed the country, right? So uh, we'll go we'll go to Westfield in honor of Frank Lowy. Okay. And um, in Westfield there is a shoe store. There's actually more than one, but we're going to go to the nicest shoe store. And um, what we're going to do is watch what happens. Mm. Pretty soon, a guy walks into the shoe store, maybe a girl, and they uh, say to the shoe store owner, hey, have you got a pair of shoes with lights in the heel that flash when I walk in my size? And the storekeeper says, yeah, sure, we got one of those. And uh, the storekeeper says, why don't you take a seat right there? You know what the storekeeper then does? He gets down on his knees. And I don't think it's an accident that the word service is used for both worship and customer. Because one way of worshiping God is by taking care of his other children. And as a father, I know that I am filled with gratitude for anybody who does good things for my kids. Well, that's how God feels as well when somebody does good things for his children. Now, uh, it goes without saying that the action is in no way diminished by the fact that the person who did the action is making a profit on that. Mm -hmm. And again, this is just unfortunate thinking that somehow uh, I can do you a favor and you can be really happy with that favor. But if you then discover that in doing you the favor, I benefited myself as well, that somehow that undoes the whole favor. For me, it's the opposite. 
Okay, yeah. If I feel that you helped me and in doing that, you also helped yourself, I'm as happy as could be. It's wonderful. So we watch the transaction and uh, the guy with the uh, the shoes, he puts them on, walks around the heel, the lights in the heels flash merrily and he could hardly be happier. So he, uh, he hands over the man how much? $20. He hands over $20 and he walks out with his brand new shoes under his arm. Now this is where you and I come in, Anne-Marie. You ready? Yes. Okay, we're going to walk up to him now. And we're going to tap him on the shoulder and say, sir, uh, we notice you have a really nice pair of shoes there. Uh, he says, yeah, lights in the heel, that flash went, yep. Okay, fine. Here's the deal. We'll offer you $20 for them. Now, Anne-Marie, what does he say to us? I don't know. What would he say? No, well, don't get your own, maybe. <laughs> yeah, what would you say if you just finally found a pair of shoes you liked and somebody outside offered you exactly what you just paid for them? Exactly. So you're crazy. Of course not. We Okay, now don't forget, we're in a thought experiment here, Anne-Marie. We don't really want those shoes, but we do want to know how much value he places on them. So now we're going to offer him $30. And he's going to say, you know what? It's not worth it. I make $10 on, but now I've got to go find a shoe store because that was the last pair the store had. I'm sorry. No, I'm not in. We say to him, how about $40? Now he's starting to think to himself, you know what? I mean, $20 profit in, in 20 minutes, that's pretty good. But he decides to hold out and he says, how about 50? And we say done. And we've now established the value of those shoes to him. So what's happened to this man's balance sheet? Now, I'm not talking about gap accounting because you can't, generally accepted accounting principles were internationally established by, uh, by auditors, international auditors, in order to try and arrive at some kind of evaluation system for assets. Uh, but in real terms, what the real um, uh, financial statement of this guy would show is he paid $20 for the shoes and he got back an asset whose value to him is $50. And the proof is that we were willing, we offered him $50 for we were ready to, and he was ready to say yes. So we say to ourselves, okay, this guy has really profited because we, because he engaged in a financial transaction. Mm -hmm. So it must mean since money can't come out of the fresh air, must be that he stole that money from the shopkeeper. And so we've established this guy is very happy about his transaction. He does not want to undo it. Let's you and me continue this thought experiment. You game for a little more of this, Anne-Marie. Let's do it. We've got David Lennon here who's uh, said, uh, Rabbi, glad I caught this. So uh, glad to have you here, David. David Lennon, that's wonderful. Hey, Anne-Marie, can I promote my website? Of course you can. Go ahead and do that. Well, it's rabbidaniellappin.com. One long word, okay? rabbidaniellappin.com. Now, uh, if you want an easy way to remember it, you can get to the same website by just saying you need a rabbi.com because I think you do. Yeah. I mean, that's because I want to stay fully employed, obviously. So let's continue this thought experiment. Okay, Anne-Marie, you and me, we're going to the store. We find the proprietor. We say, hi, um, we're engaged in a bit of thought experiment. Can we take two minutes of your time? He says, sure. Um, we say to him, you just sold a pair of shoes, right? He says, yeah. We said, you sold it for $20, right? He says, yeah, how do you know? We, oh, we just spoke to your customer outside. He says, that's right. So you gave him that pair of shoes, which are very valuable to him. You gave them to him for $20. <laughs> that means... 
that you don't have those shoes anymore. How would you like it if we help you run after that customer and make him give you back your shoes so you can just give him back the $20? That way you got the shoes back. And he looks at us, Anne-Marie, and he says, um, you know, one of you, the guy, you look a little dim. The lady, you look bright. And so I can't understand why the two of you think I would be in the slightest bit interested in undoing this transaction. We say to him, how much were those shoes worth to you? He says, $10. That's what the wholesaler charges me for that pair of shoes. I've just made a $10 profit. I don't want to undo the transaction. And so we thank him. And you and me, we walk out and we find a coffee shop there in Westfield. We sit down to analyze what we've just discovered. Yeah. What we've just discovered is that what I told you a moment ago was a big lie. When I said you can't get money out of thin air, that's exactly where you get money from. Money is created when one of God's children serves another. And that is the deeper meaning of the very first time that God said, not good. Not good for man to be alone. He's not talking exclusively about Adam's matrimonial prospects. He's talking about all time, every place, everywhere, every time. It's never good for people to be alone. And one of the things happen that happens when you're alone is you stay poor. As a matter of fact, one of the most reliable correlations for people who make a lot of money is the size of their contacts. I wanted to say Rolodex, but not many people have a Rolodex anymore. No. A Rolodex was one of those things that used to sit on people's desks and held their business cards. Yes. But I now we're going to say, was, yeah. Well, there's a saying, Rabbi, uh, that says your net work is your net worth. That's it's right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Not good for man to be alone. So we sit down in the coffee shop now and we say, well, this is really interesting. There is now our buyer, our, our happy shoe wearer with the lights in the heels that flash when you walk. He is $30 better off than before he walked into the store because he's now got an asset worth 50 for which he paid 20. So he's profited by $30. And our storekeeper has profited by $10. Are you with me on the arithmetic? Yes. Uh, we're doing great. And, uh, oh, there we got somebody else. This is so nice how you got people popping up so I can see who's uh, who's coming and who's in there. That's so nice. Um, Jakey Shaw, thank you. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, so can Let's do the thought experiment. And so let's just do the arithmetic. Our shoe-wearing happy customer is up 30. The yes. storekeeper is up 10. So the world actually has, or Australia or Melbourne, actually now has $40 more money than it, did, than it had before. And so the Australian National Bank needs to now print $40 worth of extra currency because it's being created. If they print 60, they're inflating the currency. It's a very bad thing. If they print 20, they're deflating, also no good. So ideally, they need to print just as much currency as actually being created to maintain currency integrity. But um, bottom line here is that here are two people who engaged in a financial transaction Yes. And both of them are happier than they were before. I love that example. So, I mean, when you share that example for, for others who perhaps have said to you earlier, you know, uh, money is bad, uh, we can't do that, you, you, you are, uh, you know, stealing from people when you generate, what, what response do you get from them, Rabbi? Um, I'd say um, from 
professors at business schools resentment because they're all socialists and they want to believe that anybody who makes a profit is an evil human being. But uh, from ordinary, normal, regular folks like us at the churches I speak for, at the synagogues I speak at, um, at the business companies. um, On Thursday, I'm speaking for about 600 um, agents um, of Primerica, Mm-hmm. a financial services company. Uh, the people I speak to, ordinary people, they feel liberated, Anne-Marie. They feel liberated. They feel a huge weight lifted off their shoulders because if you don't believe something can be done, you won't do it. If you're a decent, good, upright person with morals and values and you believe that when you make money, you're hurting other people, then you're not going to be able to do it very well. Absolutely. It's like the the babysitter my wife and I used. She came over. We, um, uh, I thought she said she wanted $12 an hour, which was ridiculous. But uh, we went off and we had a delightful evening. We came home. It was about nearly three hours later. And so uh, I said to her, how much do we owe you? Do you know what she did? You know, this this may sound familiar to you if you think back to, you know, before you were financially literate and before you understood business. But, if, you know, when you were a young girl, um, she looked, her eyes went down like she was embarrassed and she um, sort of started tracing patterns in the carpet with her toe, which showed she was embarrassed. And then she finally whispered, um, would $12 be an, an hour be okay? So I said, so that means you want $36. And she said, is that all right? And I said, no. She looked shocked. She could like she couldn't believe what she'd heard. And she she looked up and I said, no, $36 is, is not going to be okay. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. And she was just about to lower the price when I said to her, as, as you know exactly what I'm going to say, I said to her, we're going to pay you $40. And she looked shocked, and I and I and and I said, "Look, you did a great job for us, right? The children are in bed. You even washed dishes. We didn't ask you to do that, and um, and we want to use you next time. The next time we need a babysitter, we want to call you up, and we don't want you to tell us you're busy or you don't feel like doing it. We want you to come back, and so we want to pay you what you're worth to us." There's a lot of re-education necessary. And uh, when people have wrong ideas about money, and let me just clarify, I'm not talking prosperity gospel, okay? Yes, I know there are some people who promote this, uh, both religious and secular, by the way. The book called The Secret was kind of like this. Oh, you just have to think the right thoughts and and you're going to get the money coming to you because the law of attraction is going to bring it to you. Um, I used to spend vacations as a boy on my uncle's farm. And um, I had a pretty good idea of what manure is. Well, I don't have a better word to describe things like the attraction, the law of attraction and prosperity gospel. Yeah, no problem. You know, just just pray to God. It'll come to you. Now, I'm saying you got to pray. No question about it. But that's not all you got to do. That's just a small part of what you got to do. And that's why when the Israelites stood on the banks of the Red Sea, just after leaving Egypt, and they look up and they see a cloud of dust on the horizon, and it's the Egyptian army. Second thoughts, 
they must have been mad to let the Israelites out. <laughs> Let's go after them. We'll bring them back again. Israelites are terrified. I mean, you know, you can take the Jews out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the Jews. You know, after you've been enslaved, it takes a little work. They're terrified. They got the Egyptian army coming up behind them. They got the, uh, uh, the Red Sea in front of them, and they start weeping and crying and praying and, and praying. That's right. And what does God say? Cut it out, you idiots. Start marching. Go, go on, walk in. And only after they started walking into the ocean, did God split the Red Sea. Not before. Prayer is very important, but not by itself. It's also got to involve action. So action good. alone, sometimes good, sometimes not. Prayer alone hardly ever works. Prayer and action together, that's what makes God happy. That's what causes miracles. And uh, and so uh, the idea that you just sit at home and pray to God for a Ferrari, don't think God didn't hear your prayer. He did. It's just that he said no. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. But, uh, but pray to God. And we never, we Jews never pray, oh, please send me another $600 so I can make next week's car payment. No, it's God, please show me some of your children who need my services so I can serve them. And all I got to do is focus on serving your children. The money flows by itself. It's, it's never an issue. The more you focus on the money, the more selfishly you 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 uh, set the landscape. But I'm not focusing on the money. I'm focusing on an opportunity to serve. And that's why planning for financial self-sufficiency is wonderful. But planning to retire is hideously immoral. And I think that's one of the reasons that, unfortunately, so many people who retire do not do well health-wise. And I really do believe that God says, what? You've decided to stop serving my other children? Who needs you? Business and finance is not about what you can get, it's what you give. The getting will happen by itself. You don't have to worry about it. All you got to do, and that's why it is, by the way, that the stupidest advice that is given to uh, high school graduates who are looking for, a, you know, what are they going to do? Well, says the speaker at graduation, you must find work that you enjoy doing and that will show you'll always love your work. You must focus on doing what you love doing. This is more manure, by the way, because um, I love boating. I'm hoping to come and boat in the Whitsundays in, in, when this COVID lets me get a break and I can come to, the, uh, to Australia. Yeah. But I love boating. I've yet to find anybody who's willing to pay me to go boating. Yes. What I love doing is irrelevant. And when I'm hiring, I have a trick question. I always say to, to people in the interview, so tell me, um, you know, what do you really want to get out of this? And people sometimes are foolish enough to actually tell me, well, I'm hoping to uh, make enough money so as I can uh, buy this or get that or do that. And, and I say, thanks for the interview. Don't worry about calling us. We'll call you, haha. Um, you know, because I don't really care what you want. If you're looking for a job with me, I'm only interested in whether you know what I want. 
And as a former career coach, that previous response would have been like, you just don't say that. You do not say that. Absolutely. I mean, and yeah, go and contribute, be of service. Uh, Rabbi, I'm so fascinated and and I know we're we're almost out of time, but uh, the third point that you wanted to share a little bit more insight around why scientific and medical discoveries occurred mostly in Christendom. I'd I'd love to hear some. Well, it's it's tied into the question of why, Anne-Marie, no capital market ever arose indigenously in a non-biblical country, Jewish or Christian, mostly Christian, of course. Um, and so the stock market, today we have stock markets in, you know, in Accra and in Bangladesh and in Be- Beijing and everywhere. But stock markets came about in Amsterdam and London, which were both very Christian countries at the time. And the, um, the tie-in to scientific and medical and technical advances is very simple. It's not an accident that the uh, four great scientific revolutions that account for our modern age I mean, your cell phone depends on these things. The four of them were uh, in the late 1600s, 1680, Isaac Newton and uh, the uh, principles of Newtonian mechanics. Uh, The second one was James Clerk Maxwell, um, the uh, principles of electromagnetic force. And then came Einstein with relativity. And then after that, of course, quantum mechanics. And if you go through, not only did all these inventions take place in Christian countries and Christian societies, um, more than that, the scientists involved were overwhelmingly Christian. Bible believers. And the reason is very simple, Anne-Marie. It's because if I um, call my child and I say, please help me find my car keys, I have no idea where they are. I will get perhaps some compliance, but with limited enthusiasm. If I say, uh, please help me find my car keys, they're somewhere in this room. Mm. Changes everything because it's not an infinite hopeless quest. In the first way, like, where are the car keys? I mean, maybe they're buried in the garden. Who knows where they are? But now you tell me they're right here. They're findable. That I can do. And so, you see, it's only Jews and Christians who can all answer a basic verse. The verse is, in the beginning, God created Heaven and earth, God. Heaven and earth. It's a famous sentence. It's the opening verse of Scripture. Now, that's really important because if I believe that, then I know that one God who is all about total integrity and total unity must have built a world that is a reflection of himself in that sense. And therefore, if I'm going to look for patterns, which is all that scientific investigation is, right? You're looking for patterns in the universe. Mm-hmm. Einstein found a pattern between how two bodies attract each other, and he called it gravitation. And James Clerk Maxwell discovered the square law of magnetic force and, and the idea there has to be a North Pole and a South Pole of a magnet. But these things were patterns. And since these people all knew that God created the earth and that the earth that God created would have to be a reflection of his unity. Uh, Obviously, the earth would have those patterns as well. So they started looking for the keys in one room. They knew that their search for patterns in the universe would be rewarded. Uh, 
And that's the reason calculus was not invented by Hindus and, um, and uh, geometry was not invented by Muslims and, um, and, and, and aesthetics uh, were not invented in Africa. They were all invented under what we can call Western civilization. In fact, in fact, the civilization created by the Bible, that is why it is. And, uh, and money and capital worked exactly the same way in the sense that it, we came from a biblical culture that stressed the importance of faith, not only faith in God, but faith in one another. And I don't know if you know this, but in the United States, on every currency, on every coin and on every dollar bill, the words written are, in God we trust. Yes, it is. We've got and another comment here, uh, Rabbi, we'll just share. Karen says some very interesting conversations. Look, Karen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Karen. Some interesting conversation is if Anne-Marie talk about uh, – uh, clothing and fashion styles. That would be an interesting conversation. What we're talking about is mind-numbingly, blindingly, incandescently brilliant. <laughs> not because, you not because we are, but because it's from him. That's where it comes from. So, I mean, come on, this, this is not interesting. I mean, really. <laughs> I'm interested. I'm fascinated. It this is, fascinating. is way beyond interesting. We um, we could uh, just continue on on chatting, but I'm I'm just so uh, grateful to, to Jeff for uh, for introducing us and for you. Likewise, I know you just, you've just scratched the surface, and so I know you've got many many books. I, I know that you've got a lot of resources even on YouTube and across a lot of the social media platforms. But uh, Rabbi, before we go again, share your website for those who would like to come. Okay, across. here it is. Uh, if I tell it to you this way, look into my eyes, you'll never forget it. You ready? Yes. You need a rabbi.com. You need a rabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. Either of those ways works just fine. And uh, yeah, there's lots more resources on my website. And Anne-Marie, you're exactly right. We've, we have barely scratched the surface. Uh, if we had six hours together now, I think we'd be able to sort of at least cover the introduction. Yes, it is. I, and I, I spelt that wrong. So let me just put this up again. I need new glasses uh, let's have a look. Let me just, we're going to put this up on the screen. You need a rabbi.com. Oh, look how, look how cool that is. Thank you. That's lovely. You are welcome. Look, thank you once again for coming on the show. Um, all the very best. And, yeah, as you said, who knows, uh, Jan, let's hope that uh, it's sooner than later that you can come across and get to, to travel on a boat. Oh, I'd love to visit Australia. I really, I really would, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks once again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I, am I the first Jewish rabbi you've had on this Christian show? Yeah, the first Jewish rabbi. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> and Marie, thank you very much indeed. It was really wonderful to have some time with you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.